Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July 23rd, 2014, and this is episode 1392 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, I've got a good one for you today. We've had people on to talk about wood gasification before, how you can do it. Some people that build pieces that can then be used as parts in a gasification system. What I've got for you today, though, is a guy that's built a complete, full, operating, functioning, self-contained, portable wood gas system. And that, that system is under $1,000, right, on like 999 bucks. And he's built custom generators to run with it, or you can get a simple fitting for a propane conversion for just about any you know generator out there and run it off of this, this uh, wood gas system. Uh, I think that's highly cool. I will tell you today that today's show will be a lot about his product, more so than most shows are. I don't generally do shows that are a product-focused show. I, I try to keep TSP as far away from the infomercial space as possible in all things. But when somebody brings something to the table like this, it, I, I want to know about it. I mean, I, I want to know about a self-contained wood gas system that if I had to, I could hike back 20 miles into an off-grid cabin that you can't get a vehicle to. Uh, set up and have power back there. I want to know about that. If I can, if I can put power to a place for a fraction of the cost of doing it with solar panels and use, you know, scrap pieces of wood and, and windfall wood to produce electricity in my home, I want to know about it. And I figured you would too. So that's why I brought, uh, Mike Leister on today to talk about that. I'll have him on in just a minute. Before we, uh, get Mike on, let's go ahead and, uh, take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, HarvestEating.com. Harvest Eating is awesome, man. Chef Keith Snow, member of our expert council, all around great guy, prepper himself, and just a badass cook. Uh, his seasoning mixes are amazing. The Montana Steak Seasoning, and I, I take personal credit for that being tra changed from Montreal to Montana. I told him, you cannot call this Montreal Steak Seasoning. He said, this is a real, this is what it's really like. And I think he made a few changes to it. It made it even better when he changed the name on it. But I'm like, no one knows that, dude. When people hear Montreal Steak Seasoning, they're thinking about that, that miserable, salty crap from McCormick. This is the best steak seasoning I've ever tasted. You need to come up with a catchier name. So when he moved to Montana, it became Montana Steak Seasoning. I think it's much more fitting. And uh, I cook, I'd say, nine times out of ten if I'm making steak on the grill, uh, unless I'm doing fajitas or something like that. I'm using this, his steak seasoning. Occasionally I might do something different just for a twist, but, man, it's, it, it is the best. Northern Italian, all things that call for Italian seasonings, or even when things just call for oregano or something, I, I go to his Uh, Northern Italian seasoning. The roasted chicken is awesome. It's all great. And he's got my favorite spices in a TSP Monster Pack on his site now. Uh, check him out today, harvesteating.com. Check out his podcast, his YouTube channel, his Roku channel. He's awesome. Just a great guy to have as a sponsor. Next up today, knifekits.com. One of the biggest things that's lacking in America today is people knowing how to do shit. I mean, just to be completely blunt. People don't know how to do shit anymore. When something breaks, you call a guy, and you call a guy to fix your your, your air conditioner. And if he needed to change the alternator on your car, the guy that comes to change the air conditioner, fix the air conditioner for you, probably couldn't change the alternator on a car anymore. 
Everybody's got into specialization. There's an old saying that specialization is for insects. General skills are the hallmark of the modern Renaissance man. And when you start learning things like how to do fit and finish on the handle scales of a knife and how to do basic knife sharpening and how to build sheaths from a kit system at knifekits.com, you start to learn a lot of skills that transfer to other areas. And you can take that skill all the way up to becoming your own master bladesmith and being able to start out with raw materials. Or you can just learn the basics and make something cool for yourself for not a lot of money. Check them out today, knifekits.com. I'd like to remind you, knifekits.com and Harvest Eating both do discounts for members of the Support Brigade. And the Support Brigade continues to get to be a better value every day. Hold on before going to tacticalwoodgas.com today and buying a system, because by the end of this episode, you're going to hear me get you a really great discount from them. I'll leave it at that today. If you want to join the MSB and you're not currently a member, just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on members, and you can sign up there. Remember, I do take silver, cash, check, money order by mail, or PayPal online. I also take Bitcoin. All the options are on the page to do that. And uh, if you are military, law enforcement, or Peace Corps, or an active duty, uh, first, or active duty or retired, doesn't matter, first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, you do qualify for a discount. Any of those professions, again, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, Uh, first responders like EMTs, paramedics, firefighters, anything similar. Just email me before you join. Put service discount in the subject line in one or two sentences only is all I need. Tell me about your service, and I'll send you a discount code back for when you sign up. Please do that before, not after you join. Everybody else, 18.3 cents an episode. When you get done with today's show, if you think that was 20 cents worth of value, consider joining. Anyway, with that, let's get into the year that was the episode. The year is 1392. Because the episode is 1392. I have King Charles finally snaps, which is very interesting. You might want to get over to the wiki today and read that, because I'm going to read The Mayor Offers Corn Subsidies. <laughs> All right. Due to, and, and, and some of the, the, the history segments we haven't read have talked up till now about um, how there's been a problem with the currency being debased in England because the king changed the money which is always great when government changes money. It causes all kinds of problems. Um, and we did talk a little bit about that, but I just want you to know that's that's the big rigmarole here. The king reduced the, the percentage of the coins that contain precious metal, and a whole shitload of problems came from that. Uh, there's been all types of currency controls and labor laws and things like that enacted around it as well. And chickens are really coming home to roost in the year 1392. So the mayor offers corn subsidies. Due to the debasing of the English currency and a diseased fruit crop, the people have nothing wholesome to eat and not enough money to pay for better food. The mayor of London has stepped forward and is subsidizing the price of corn so that the poor can afford it. Famine is a normal part of life in the Middle Ages, so that when the king messes with the coinage there is a, and, or there's a crop failure, people on the bottom rung of the ladder will suffer. In this case, there's plenty of wheat, but it is expensive, and corn is scarce because the major corn regions of the Middle East are now under control of the Ottoman Turks. The, okay, so that's that's the situation. So the mayor offers a subsidy so that people can eat and not die. Um, and you got to think, as a government official right now, where you want minions to control, you really need to keep your minions alive. The, the population of Europe and, 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 and Asia has been reduced by more than half at this point due to four major waves of the Black Death coming through. In fact, what I skipped yesterday was the fourth wave, I think. Maybe it was the fifth wave of the Black Death, the bubonic plague. Um, so that all started almost 100 years ago at this point, and it's continually come back every 10, 20 years. 
So you got people dropping over left and right, and now they're dying because the food is, there's been a problem with the fruit, and they can't afford their grain, and pretty soon you'll have no minions to pay taxes anymore or do the work, and then you might have to do some shit for yourself. So if you're in the government right now, you're shitting your pants that too many of your minions are dying. In fact, too many of everybody's minions are dying. The whole feudal order is being threatened with death right now. Alex Shrugs take the price of corn in the United States is subsidized by the government, so it is cheaper to sweeten food products with corn syrup than regular syrup. Some people suspect the human body processes corn sweeteners differently than regular sugar and not in a good way. Corn is also subsidized, so it is cheap enough to be used for a fuel additive in our cars. When something is subsidized to be cheaper, it will be used more where it is subsidized and used less where it is not. This creates scarcity in the non-subsidized areas, and thus famine can be caused by government subsidy corn rather than relieving famine, as the mayor of London tried to do in the Middle Ages. Okay, uh, I want to point something out here that, that's been pointed out before when Alex has used the word corn, uh, and we, we're, we, you know, it's all been prior to 1392 at this point. There's another 92 year that's quite monumentous in history. Of course, it's 100 years from now, 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and supposedly discovered America, which we, as we look through the lens of history now, we know it's complete crap. First of all, it was already here, so you don't discover what's already here. But even in the way that it's meant, there were people that came here from Europe long before Columbus. Um, and I don't think Columbus thought he was going to sail off the end of the earth. And there was no near mutiny on Columbus's ship and all. Maybe we'll get to that, you know, a hundred episodes from now. But anyway, one thing that did happen in the late 1400s, early 1500s, is corn... Uh, it came from the New World to the Old World, and it was like a gardening oddity for a while. And then they went, oh, this is really good stuff. This is a high food value thing those savages live on over there. And they adopted it and started growing it themselves in large quantities. What's well, a hundred years from now before corn officially gets to the Old World? And there's this big-ass ocean in the way. Okay. And yeah, maybe, you know, Leif Erikson or somebody came over here and hung out a bit, but there was no corn as we think of it, no maize in Europe in 1392. None. So how does a astute student of history like Alex Shrug keep using the word corn? He's using the right word, we just don't understand it today. In the language of the time, corn was used as a generic term for grain. Corn would be used much like, see, if you're here, if you're up in the Midwest and, and some, you want to offer somebody a Coke, right, you say you want a pop or a soda pop or a soda, I guess. I don't know what you guys say up there. I don't live there. But you say, do you want a soda? And then they say, yeah. And you say, well, what kind? And they're like a Sprite or a Dr. Pepper or, a, you know, RC or orange or whatever, right? But you ask them if they want a pop. In, in Texas, if I ask you if you want a Coke, Believe it or not, I'm not actually asking if you want something that says Coke on it. I'm asking you if you want a soda in a can, most likely. So it, this is a standard conversation in Texas today. Hey, you want a Coke? Yep. What kind? Dr. Pepper. I'm dead serious. And it's interesting how the use of language changes over time, because corn's not really corn. It's been made that word. Corn is maize. So when Alex uses the term corn here, he may be talking about a specific type of grain that was called corn, but he's not talking about New World maize. Little thing. I don't know if Alex knows that or not. Um, I'd like to uh, learn more about that myself. Anyway, with the history segment knocked out, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. 
and I have Mike Leister about to come on here. Mike is an awesome dude, man. Uh, he was in the Marine Corps for a tour. He got out and got himself an electrical engineering degree, so he's one of them really smart kind of guys. Um, he has designs on the International Space Station. Uh, I guess he's, uh, he's up there with Howard Wallowitz then. Um, he's also got, uh, some stuff on the, uh, Williams Grand Prix race car suspension. Uh, he currently runs a team of engineers that validates the software stack for the Win Windows tablet reference designs. So this guy's pretty sharp, dude. Uh, he's also a serial entrepreneur. He launched a company to provide LED taillights for 40s, 1940s street rods. Uh, in the past, and this year he walked uh, Tactical Wood Gas Inc., uh, and they manufacture these wood gasifiers that we're talking about that are scaled for home generators, and that all started because he read one of Stephen Harris's books. Uh, and he's just a great guy, and he's put together a really awesome system. His website is called tacticalwoodgas.com. Again, if you really want one of these things, hold out till the end because uh, you're going to hear me hit him up and get you a discount and a damn good one on the generator side of things. And uh, with that, hey, man, Mike, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. I've been uh, listening, downloading podcasts for six years now as uh, wow. under the radar, uh, back from when you were uh, driving in your Jetta and saying nice things to the drivers around you. <laughs> well, I, I did definitely recognize the name, the last name. I mean, I think a lot of people think that I... I don't really know people on a names basis because there's so many, but when I saw your name, I'm like, I know the name. So I don't know if it's probably from being an MSB member or what have you or from customer service, but I knew the name. I didn't know what you did, though, which is really cool, uh, which is we're going to talk about wood gasification today. But before we get into that, you know, you said you've been listening to the show for six years, so obviously you're into prepping. You've done a lot of other cool stuff. You just kind of tell people about kind of your, your, your pathway that led you here, like your, your career background and some of the other cool stuff you've done. done. All right. Uh, well, I started out, I mean, my, my road to prepping started actually in high school. I had one of those unusual teachers in civics that, you know, kind of told us the truth and put a uh, chart of the national debt. This is like 1982. And oh, wow. I noticed that it, it never went down. I mean, so even there's like a little glip in, in 1950 when it went down, but he explained how that was just some money games they played. I said, well, that'll end badly. Um, I should uh, do something about that so that I'm not uh, surprised. So kind of my whole life has been, you know, decision-making in terms of, you know, eventually things are going to get tough and uh, I should be, you know, resistant to that. So first thing I did was I enlisted in the Marine Corps, did uh, basically got all the the piss and vinegar out of my system, jumping out of helicopters and swimming to shores and, and, and those kinds of things that uh, kind of, you know, took care of the tactical end of getting ready for what may come. Um, and then uh, got, out of, uh, got out of the Marine Corps, went to college, and, and I had just fallen in love with radios and decided, you know, hey, if, it's, if I can use this radio to get resupplied, to get extracted, all these, you know, cool things in the military – um, you know, I, I really want to know how these things really, really work. So I went and got an engineering degree um, and did, uh, you know, more, more of the real high-tech stuff um, because I had fun doing it, and it also paid for preps. That's one thing about the, the high-tech industry is um, it, there's, there's money left over at the end of the paycheck um, or end of the, the pay period. So I was able to do, you know, things, you know, like uh, – um, you know, get my food preps in place, get, uh, you know, learn how to 
Now, my wife's an Alaska girl, so she had the kind of the fishing and gardening and, and, and that aspect of it uh, under control and, and canning and all that. Um, but I did uh, space. Uh, I've got parts up in space in the space station in uh, XM satellite, uh, satellites, that kind of stuff. But I always I kept kind of try to balance that with low-tech stuff that, that would be useful should high-tech not be available anymore. Um, and one of the things that, that we did a lot of, we have been doing for like 15 years now, is my brother-in-law was a, and sister-in-law has a farm, and we do uh, we slaughter the hogs and cattle every year. And, and we'll put maybe five, $7,000 of, of meat in the freezer, you know, and, you know, high-end stuff, bacon, summer sausage, stuff that, you know, is if you had to replace, would just kill you. Um, and both of us were traveling for business a lot, and, and both of us, you know, looked at our wives and said, you know, the, if we give them a generator with a pull start, they're not going to be, you know, very happy with us should we need to preserve the meat. So uh, just about that time you had, uh, uh, oh, gosh, the energy guy. Stephen Harris? Stephen Harris. You had him on, and, and uh, you had announced, hey, we're going to do a battery bank uh, thing. I said, well, I already know how to do that. So I, I banged one together for me and for my my brother-in-law and, and uh, put an inverter on it and said, okay, you know, hey, you know, my wife and my, my sister-in-law, all you got to do when the power goes out is plug the freezer into this thing and turn this switch on and you're good for a week. Um, and, and by then we ought to be able to get home and, and things will be fine. So we thought, oh, that's great. You know, we thought, well, what happens after a week? Well, th- then we looked at it and said, uh, you know, generators, they're, they're going to be okay, but we looked into them, and gosh, all the ones from Home Depot and places like that, if you looked at, at your warranty on it, you've got like somewhere between 60 and 100 hours. Um, so we said, well, we need one where we can have backup engines and all that. So we basically designed our own um, little three-horse guy that, that uh, just sips the gas. And then we looked at it and said, well, there's only so much gas we're storing. How long could the emergency last? Well, longer than, than you know, or could gas become not affordable to us? So. At that point, we said gasification. Then went back to uh, um, uh, gasification guy. Um, you just said his name. Stephen Harris. Stephen Harris. There we go. <laughs> um, we basically went back to him and bought his book on gasification, and I read it, and I read it, and I read it. Um, and I said, wow, this is uh, big. It's bigger than, um, you know, you need for a home generator, and it's uh, something that, you know, I'm an engineer. I bet I could make something that uh, is smaller, that is, you know, scaled properly, something that you don't need a forklift to lift up, that sort of a thing. Um, so, you know, the fabrication skills from, you know, building cars and different things I've done in, in my garage, kind of put that together and, and uh, you know, finally came up with something that said, you know, I bet other people would like this too. Very cool, and 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 that's kind of what led you into doing this as a business, right? Yeah, there's well, it's a combination. It's kind of like kind of like you and perma permaculture. You say you get all these uh, questions. You say, well, it depends. Um, you know, from it was a it was a multi pronged uh, reasoning. I mean, one of them is I'm you know what late forties. I'm I'm not counting on Social Security being there, and I want to have a uh, retirement income. And so I thought, well, this would be, you know, something that I would love to do that, uh, um, you know, could be very useful under even normal circumstances. Um, there's a, a Tequitna Valley um, up north of Anchorage, uh, northern Idaho. There's there's a lot of rural places where people have cabins that are completely off grid. 
Um, and they're not just off-grid. Um, you have a hard time getting a car into the things. And so you're not going to, you know, something that requires a pallet jack, you know, is, is not going to work for, for people like that. So we figured, well, you know, make this thing to where it'll fit on a backpack and you can hike it in 20 miles. If, if you're, uh, if you can normally do 20 miles, you can do 20 miles with this on your back. So, um, gives, gives you options, uh, or if you got to bug out, you got to pick up and move it and you got to fit it into uh, a small space. Just kind of scaled it for that. One thing I've noticed about what you're doing is a lot of people that have gone into this go through over and over and over again. They get the perfect plan. They build it. They prove that it works. And then they sell. Here's the plans to build your own. Um, you decided to actually build and sell the end product. So I think that's great because, I, th- you know, I have my own opinion about why I think that's great. But I'm not going to say it because maybe I'll step on you. But what are some of like the design and fabrication challenges that led you to sell the actual gasifier instead of just selling the plans? Well, I, I looked at the plans, and the plans are complicated. And, and I'm an engineer, and I'm patient. And, and going through the plans, you know, the, there's, you know, the Stephen Harris book is is good, and it's got a lot of information in there. But it's it's you know something you're gonna run a big truck on, um, and and there's no details on how do you scale that down. The other thing is. Um, I went to, let's see, Spokane Sustainable Preparedness Expo. Um, and thought, well, you know, I got money. I got a thousand bucks in my wallet. Let me go see what's, uh, what's out there. That's actually, I looked at, at the cost of development. So that'd be cheaper to, you know, spend a thousand bucks on it than it would be to develop it. And what I saw there was, you know, one guy who couldn't get it started and it was a one off. And another guy, it was just a bad design. He was selling plans and it was, you know, I don't know probably eight, 900 pounds of heavy iron pipe and, and uh, threading uh, cast iron and all these things that, you know, from a manufacturing standpoint is just be a nightmare. So I, I, I looked at that and, and said, you know, I could, I could simplify this to the point that uh, it would cost people less to buy it than to buy the materials. Um, and, and that would be a service. That, that people would look at and say, hey, that, that's worth, you know, even for guys that are, um, you know, hey, I got to do everything myself. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to, but I just need to get started. Uh, we made a little, you know, tiny, tiny unit. There was an exercise in how small we could make this thing. And it literally is, you know, like uh, two foot tall and, and eight inches around. And we've run a uh, six and a half horse uh, engine off of that little thing that, I don't know, it weighs four pounds. Um, and so he said, you know, the, the, just the cost of the, the hole saws and the bits for drilling stainless steel, um, would cost you more than the unit. So we figured, Hey, plans are, are great for those who, uh, you know, you know, have to do it for themselves. But if, if you're looking at it from a pragmatic standpoint of, you know, you're specialized in something else, but you want this. Um, this gets you going fast for less money than building yourself. Okay, um, definitely. I mean, I look at it this way. There's a lot of things I could build, but I don't have the time or the patience to do so, and and that's why I buy them pre-built. I mean, I, I look at it this way. I could build a ladder. I could build a damn good wooden ladder, absolutely. Um, but I'd prefer to just do what I did, which is buy a really good extension ladder and have it. Um, and, and know that it's going to work because it was built by somebody that knows how to build ladders. 
Yeah, and, and, and enough people have used that ladder that if there were any bugs in it, it had been, you know, it had been found. <laughs> and you don't want a bug in your ladder, especially if it's a termite and it's a wooden ladder, right? So, <laughs> so I mean, I'm just saying that, like, there's a lot of things in life that I could build for myself. I guess, in, in essence, I could probably build a car from the ground up if I wanted to. And some people like to do that, but, you know, it's not how I get my cars. Um I think we all have to decide what we actually want to build for ourselves and what we want to outsource. And I think with something like a wood gasifier, there's so many little nuances that have to be tuned just right to get it to function the way it's supposed to. Um, and having someone that's built a hundred of them build another one is a lot different than somebody that's never built one building the first one. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Especially, you know, when, when I've got the, you know, six drill presses in a row, and each one has a jig, and each one has a custom bit. And I'm, you know, I, I just, you know, I've got a guy working down the line, you know, kind of factory, you know, automated factory style. Uh, yeah. You know, of course, we're not. That's automated, a great but. point. I wasn't even thinking about that. But, yeah, I mean, if I have to reset for every part that I cut, drill, or fabricate versus having everything. Because when you, when you, once you set things up with a jig and lock it in, that hole's going in the exact spot that it's supposed to every time unless somebody screws with it. Yeah. Uh, where if I set it up and drill it, I, I remember my metal shop teacher in, in, in high school, he said, you know, if you guys had wood shop before you came in here, you're in for a world of hurt. There's no such thing as metal dough, <laughs> right? Like when you put a hole in metal, there's a hole in metal. You know, when you cut metal, you've cut metal. You, you, you don't just glue it back together. And he was right. And with with things like that, once and you know, as we progressed through, we went into like you built a little thing, and then you built a bigger thing, and you designed something, you built it, and then you went in a group, and we built something. And once we had a prototype, then we set it up so each person in the team would do one piece, like an assembly line, and have everything set up with you. And once you have that, and you've you've got it dialed in, that hole goes where that hole belongs. It's the right size. You can't get the wrong bit or whatever. Um, so that's a great point. I really didn't think of. Yeah, yeah. If if you if you saw the hole in my wallet from the jigs we made and from the scrap pile, um, you'd you'd be crying as hard as I am. It's uh... <laughs> probably not quite as hard because it's not my money and. <laughs> The, the money's starting to flow back the other direction now. So. That's that's really cool. So what are the components that make up a full gasifier system that's just ready to go? I mean, so I'm looking on your site right now and seeing the big big dragon full kit with metal filter in stock nine ninety nine ninety five. Um, it looks like about the are, are the body built out of like steel buckets that are about the size of a five. I mean, I'm okay. trying to get scale on this because there's nothing for me to get scale with. Right, yeah, th those uh, those are we start as our base uh, for building with the five gallon steel buckets and and just the uh, just finding a decent source on those things that doesn't have the tablet but has the lever lock lid. Um, okay. Yeah. So yeah, we looked at it and said, I mean, for for me, you know, what's the shortest path to a working product? Um, you know, financially and and uh, time wise, we looked at what's already being made now that I could repurpose. Um, and so, yeah, so these, so the, back to your original question. So the, the main, the kind of the guts of the thing is the, is the reactor. Um, and that's the one that, uh, you put the, the wood in the top, um, and you light it on fire and it, uh, burns in a way that produces hydrogen methane gases. 
Um, and either the engine is running and pulling the air through, the gases through, or you've got a fan initially uh, pushing the gases through. So that's, that's the, the first stage is the reactor. And that's where, like I said, the burn happens, the gas is produced. Um, you come out of the side of that in a steel uh, pipe, and, and a certain amount of heat is shed there. Um, and, and when I talk about shedding heat, that's uh, just absolutely critical to this process. Um, then it goes into the side of a, a water jacket heat exchanger. So it's, it's kind of like an inside-out radiator. Um, there's a, it, it comes into a stainless steel chamber that's on the inside and then exits out the bottom of that five-gallon pail. And uh, you fill that full of cold water. Um, and if you're uh, operating in, you know, extreme temperatures, um, we've got a fitting on there for a, a hose so you can kind of drool water through the thing to uh, keep it from, you know, it'll boil the water eventually if you run it long enough. Um, and that's not, uh, that's not cool enough. So we go through the cooling stage, and that's the, um, the lower part of the stack on the, uh, should be on the right of the picture. Um, and then it comes out, and that's the stage at which you've taken you know, probably 15 to 1800 degree uh, hydrogen methane gases, and you've cooled them down to, you know, 60, 70 degrees. Um, and, and part of a side effect of that cooling is you're condensing out the tar. Um, and so there's a catch jar at the bottom that called, we call the tar trap. Um, and that basically the, as the gas passes through that cooler stage, um, it uh, sheds the heat out into the water through the, the stainless steel walls. Uh, the, the tar condenses and then runs down the sides and then catches in that jar. So it'll basically be a combination of, of water vapor and crude oil is, is, is what it's very much like. Um, and then uh, at that point, you've got clean gas that, that you can use, but it may have uh, particles in it. So you go up to the, uh, the final stage, which is the, the uh, particle filter, and that's a three-stage filter where we basically remove everything that uh, is solid matter and you're left with just the gases you want. Well, some extra gases. There's some nitrogen things that doesn't burn, but hydrogen is such a volatile gas, it kind of makes up for that. Um, and then at that point, you're ready to uh, mix it 50-50 with regular outside air and, and, and run an engine with the thing. So it, is there then some service to be done on that filter? Does it have to be replaced or cleaned or, or what have you? Right. So um, if during the, uh, the, the more the, the tube that comes across, um, okay. the, the heaviest of the tars actually condense in that tube into solids. Um, okay. And so, uh, you know, you do, if you do, uh, you know, say on the inch and a half pipe there, if you do a three-hour run, um, you know, you'll probably be okay. But after, you know, five, six hours of run, you want to unscrew that, uh, you know, you'll look through it and you just, you know, run a plunger, run a, run a you know, a pipe or something down there and just um, clean that stuff out. Um, the You can run some water through the cooler to rinse off anything, but... Uh, Generally, it's, uh, it's, it's still warm enough and uh, liquid enough that it just runs down into the catch jar. Uh, okay. So, so it's not uh, – we haven't really had issues with, with clogging of the, of the cooler. It's more the, uh, the horizontal pipe that connects the cooler from the, uh, from the reactor. I got you. Now, the, the stuff that runs into that catch jar, the tar, mm -hmm. uh, is it just a straight waste product, or is there any use for that whatsoever? Oh, we're still working on that. I saw a really cool video. There's like this uh, desert hillbilly chemist, um, which I think is an awesome combination. Um, and and he's, 
he's taken this stuff and he's putting it back into a, a metal container, sticking it on the top of a, a rocket stove, and basically cracking it, um, just by heating it up to where it's, it turns back into gases. And what he's done is, in, like for us, we're doing that in one stage. We're condensing out everything that we don't want all in one stage. He's got small, you know, basically smaller cooling stages, but he's got 15 of them. So he'll have the first stage is, you know, still looks like crude oil. Second stage is a heavy motor oil. Third stage is, is more like a diesel. Um, you know, further on, you've got wood alcohol. Um, and so basically he goes and, and... This sounds like a guy that knows how to build a really good moonshine still to me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we're, we're not at that stage yet. Um, yeah. But, uh, we've got uh, a drum that we're saving it in so that when we've got the time to uh, experiment with that, we can. Because it would be cool if... If not only were you, you know, producing your own gas for your engine, you're producing your own oil to to replace in in the engine as well. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I, I just wasn't sure. It just seemed like, you know, it is basically an energy output. Therefore, it must hold additional energy. Therefore, there must be a use for it. I didn't realize there were that many uses. If you oh, yeah, do it, have to separate it, so to speak. Yeah, it definitely does. And then we also have we. On the uh, farm in Spokane, we've got some trees and, and uh, some things that are separated from our food crops. Um, and so we're basically spreading it out there in a section that we've marked off. And, and basically, um, it, you know, are things going to thrive or die in that zone? So we're huh. even from the standpoint of, you know, if you're just going to dispose of it, what should you do with this stuff? Um, so you're you know, testing that to see. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, there's a, a – got a contact whose wife is a chemist, but uh, – she wasn't able to get access to her lab for our testing, um, so we're we're looking to get that tested. But for now, you know, kind of the safe message is, um, you know, store it in a jar, bring it down to your your city's uh, hazardous waste, and, and and they'll they'll incinerate it for you. Uh, okay. You know that that's the short term message, but uh, you know, long term we'd like to uh, you know you hate to have to throw anything away. Um, yeah, definitely. Especially if it's you know like all the all the products you mentioned were useful products. Yeah. That's that's very interesting. Um, and and you're making it available to the average Joe to do this now. Everybody in the prepper world has probably seen the plans for the FEMA gasifier, and everybody talks about building one, and very few people do. But the people that do always say it makes very very dirty gas. We've talked about how this works, but you know, are you able to get a much cleaner product? And if so, exactly how? Uh, cooling it. Everything is about cooling. Um, the, yes, the, the, now the FEMA gas fire. The way most people build it is uh, they they build it per per plan, um, but then they look at their engine and and they say, well, I kind of need a bigger hole. And they put they have too big of a, a they basically overbuild it. They build it for too big of an engine, and so you get um, either too big of a burn area or you get uh, uh, the burn area expands to a certain size and you get air bypassing it. And so then you get, uh, you know, burning, you get puffs of fire after, uh, after your sh should be only just uh, good gas. Um, it's, uh, really, it's, if you took a FEMA gas fire and you cooled that enough, um, and, and we haven't seen anybody that's doing a water jacketed, uh, heat exchanger like we're doing, um, that's the, the simplest and fastest way to, to get the temperature down to the point that you condense out all the crap. Um, and then we did some things with the restricting the input uh, at, at the top of the unit. There's a place to stick a fan to initially get the thing going. And then also it just you take the fan off when it's running. 
you know, the size of that hole, the size of the, you know, we, we drill multiple holes instead of one big hole like they show in, in they give you a table and say, hey, drill this, this size hole and, and hang a stainless steel uh, colander in there. Um, we didn't go that route because we, these are going to be generally stable units. They're not going to be bouncing around and, and get the advantage of that hanging chain um, ash uh, uh, clearer. Um, so we have a, a pattern of holes that we experimented with, found you know what works. So it's a it's a ratio of of the input size uh, to the the hole size where you're passing the the gas through the the fire. Um, you know that that we've optimized to produce less gas, but then you know cool the heck out of it. Um, in like right now in Spokane, there's how many fires are going on? Uh, there's a Watermelon Hill fire. There's a Carlton Complex fire, which is actually the that's the biggest one in Washington history is going on right now. Zero percent contained, 300 square miles, I think. Uh, Shaney fire. There's there's kind of fires all over the place. You know what what are you going to do for um, for power under those circumstances? Um, you know when when you have to minimize the the runs that you have and, and the and the fuel that you're using. Okay. Very cool. Um, how do you operate the gas fire? Like, we've kind of talked about what it is and what it does, but, like, so I'm sitting here, I've got my gasifier, and I want to make gas. What's the, the startup sequence uh, of the gas fire itself to get it producing that gas? How long does it take? How long does it run for? What do I have to do while it's running to maintain it? Okay, so when we do demos, um, we can, from, a, from a, everything being cold, uh, to the engine running, we get it going in about 12 minutes. And, and the, the process is, um, you know, fill the cooler with, with nice cold water. Um, and then fill the hopper, uh, the top of the reactor, fill the hopper with wood. And the wood needs to be, you know, anything as small as, uh, uh basically chunk wood, not, not logs or anything. Uh, everything as small as, um, uh, pellet stove fuel all the way up to about golf ball sized. Uh, but, but chunky wood, get that uh, loaded up in there nice and dry. There's an ignition port, and, and the important thing here is you're, you're not lighting it at the top, you're lighting it at the very bottom of the wood. So there's this, there's this port to the side, you unscrew this cap and you stick a, a torch in there to, to get the thing burning at the bottom. And what we do then is, is we've got a, a fan, a 12 volt fan that sits on the top and we'll just actually draw air in that uh, port and up through the, uh, the the hole at the top that you fill it with, which is kind of the opposite direction, but it's, it's convenient um, to get it. The, you get better airflow that way. So basically, and, and when you see a nice thick cloud of gas, where it's you know it, uh, the, the the smoke is is uh, you know you can't see the smoke. It's really solid. Um, then you put that cap on, and that's a real important uh, step. Um, putting that cap on first. And then pull the uh, the fan off and flip it over so it's pushing air through the system. If you forget that, you get about this two foot flame that flies out of the uh, uh, the the, uh, the ignition port. And if you, if you flip the fan over, then you also get some cold. So for a safety thing, make sure you close that port and then flip the fan over. And the fan will be pushing the gas through the system. And and how it works is um, you get it, the the fire is lit at the bottom of the wood. And the, the air pushing through it, like it's kind of a blast furnace, and it, and it grows the size of the, of the reaction area, the burn area, up until um, basically it's using all of the oxygen that you're pushing in. And it, it would like to grow bigger, but, but it's using all the oxygen. 
uh, and it's it's kind of stabilized at a certain size fire. But that heat of that wood uh, burning is cooking the wood on the top of it. And and this is the difference between these downdraft gas fires and the old-fashioned ones where you'd have you'd have a burn chamber and you'd have a gasification chamber, and they were separate and it was kind of a pain in the butt. You had to, you know, cool it down and empty things out. But that's, I guess I won't go too far into that because that's not what we're doing. Um, so the, the fire cooks the wood above it, releases hydrogen methane gases. Um, the fan pushes it down through the fire. It doesn't burn because the fire is already using all the oxygen that's available. Passes through that and, and down into the ash area where ash as it burns falls into, um, comes out into the cooling area, uh, cools down to the point that, that you can use the thing. Okay, and then once we've got that all working, how do we actually then hook up a motor to that and generate power? Okay, so the uh, the so that's the point at which you're producing um, wood gas. And what we do is we we take a um, just a metal pipe and we we stick it on the uh, end of the tube, you know, where not in you know where it's not connected to the engine, and we just do a test burn. And when it uh, when it burns nice and clean and blue. Um, you know, and stays lit, then it's uh, ready to go. And at that point, we connect it to the, uh, to the engine. Um, and it'll, you know, with the, with the fan there, it'll kind of flood the system. It'll push gas through, you know, wood gas through everything. Then we'll take the, uh, the uh, fan off and then we'll crank the engine. And uh, we, we first start out with the, the, there's a valve we supply for the wood gas and we, you know, that's all the way open and the air valve is all the way open. So you're kind of, you're being your own carburetor here. Um, and you crank the engine, um, and you just, you close the air until the mix is right and it starts the engine. Um, now, for if you've done it quite a few times, like, like we have, we know where to set it. And, and it, you know, we've had it start in two seconds. Um, if it's your very first time, you know, it's going to take some minutes to, uh, to get the thing just right. Um, but uh, once you've figured out where it is, then you're, you're pretty much good from that, that point on. Um, let the engine, uh, you know, warm up a little bit um, and then uh, adjust, it, adjust the, uh, the mixture um, with, with the air valve until it you know, gets, nice, you know, the nice strongest uh, run you can. Add the, uh, the load on to the thing. And then, uh, you know, for, for us, like we're, we're doing a simple uh, on the generators that we sell, it's, we're just spinning an alternator. Um, and so then we'll go and, and uh, crank down the, the wood gas valve and bring the RPMs down to the point that we're, you know, it's still spinning it and, and making good power, but there's no, you know, and, you know, an alternator runs. It, it, at it past a certain RPM, you're just, you know, you're not getting much out of it additional. Um, so you just run it down to where you're getting a good, uh, you know, 80, 100 amps out of the alternator at 12 volts uh, to charge your batteries. And you, you actually have a generator that you provide that's designed already set up to run with this? We do. Um, and we thought, well, you know, should we do this? And we thought, oh, no, people, you know, they're going to want to use their existing generators. Um, but we did uh, shows. We did, you know, the, the sustainable preparedness show. We did uh, some expos. We did uh, even Mother Earth News um, Fair. And uh, people wanted a complete system. So we just, well, okay, we can do that. Um, and so we, you know, basically, uh, you can buy a full end-to-end -end system with this generator already ported and ready to go with, the, you know, instructions with, with, you know, videos and everything it takes to, to get the thing going. 
Um, for people who have an existing generator or water pump or, you know, basically any gas engine that, that they want to run off the thing, um, there's, oh gosh, it's called uh, propanegenerators.com. Um, they sell uh, propane adapter kits for just about any small engine that's out there. So what you would do is, is go and adapt your engine to uh, propane, but then you hook up the wood gas to it instead of propane, and it runs the same way. It, 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 oh, wow. it runs exactly the same as, uh, as, a, as, as propane would under that condition. Okay, very cool. And you have two different generators. One's a straight 12-volt, and one has a, uh, uh, an inverter on it. Can you talk about those two different motors, right. two different systems? Right. So the uh, the smaller one is a little three uh, three horse three and a half horse, uh, and uh, it it spins the same alternator as as the big one. It's just that we've changed the pulley sizes. Um, you know, with the smaller engine, uh, we just want to make sure that if you put a big load on the thing, it wouldn't uh, kill the engine, stall it out. So, um, in that and and addition to that, we've added the uh, uh, a small inverter uh, to the thing, so you can get you know you could you could just Straight plug in your uh, your freezer on the thing. It's an 800 watt uh, inverter that we, that we uh, use for that one. So you know, in that case, you're you're ready. You know, with if you buy that full system, um, you know the the uh, the gas fire system and the and the small generator. You know, you're ready to be plugging in your uh, your freezer and, or, or whatever. Uh, you know, up to about 800 watts, um, and and run it straight off that. With the six and a half horse, it's uh, we've changed the the pulley ratio, um, and it uh, it runs um, more at the high end of, of what that alternator can put out, um, and you can you can hammer it with uh, loads, and and uh, it doesn't it do kind of shrugs that off and just keeps on going. And, and how would a person utilize that generator differently? Because obviously we're not just going to run an extension cord out there and plug into that. So would would it primarily be useful then to set up a battery bank and use this to keep the batteries topped off as you're running the batteries? Or attach this a, 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 a an inverter of your own. What would be the or use just 12 volt product? I mean, how how what is what is the uh, well? First of all, I'm looking at the picture. I can't see what's the the power output like on that. Is it a, is it just something you put down a couple leads to or something? Yeah, it's it's 800 watts, so it'll it'll do a single um, you know reasonable uh, um, appliance. But uh, how how we do it um, for ourselves and, and how we recommend is is you know a a Stephen Harris style battery bank um, you know six kilowatt hours um, you know is is a good size that we like um, and just use this thing and for those that haven't listened to all the technical details from Stephen Harris can you just give kind of a count on batteries for an average okay. system that would do I, that sure so um, in that case we're using four GC two golf cart batteries. Uh, they're six volt, but if you put two six volts uh, in series, um, you get twelve. So, th- so then two two strings of uh, of uh, of those. So f- four golf cart batteries, uh, GC two type. They're about two hundred and forty uh, amp hours, I think. Um, and so it, you do the math, and you end up with about six kilowatt hours of of uh, power that you can get out of the thing. Um, in that case, we've got. Uh, uh, for our own use, we we put uh, 2,000 watt inverters on there, and so we can do you know we can run electric chainsaws, we can run all, you know we can run our our, our business our you know with uh, these three um, big big fires. There's especially like that uh, the one closer to the center of the state, um, the Carlton Complex fire. 
Um, they're telling people three weeks they're, they're going to be without power. I don't, wow. I don't believe that for a minute. Um, you know, these, these are, you know, big, long runs of power lines that are burned and gone. Gone. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's what they The pole's me. gone and the line's gone. Yeah, they're not just going to put that back up. Yeah. So, you know, for for just for homestead use or for, like, our use here, um, um, keeping a business going, um, you know, with with that inverter um, and that battery bank, and then and then the ability to charge that from these uh, uh, gas fire units, we can keep the business going. We can keep the uh, we can keep the coyotes out of the chickens with you know keep the electric wire going on the on the, the fencing. You know, there's so many things in life get easier um, when you still have that power. And when I look at small generators, whether a wood gas generator, uh, a Honda EU2000 or anything like that, I've always seen the way they partner with the battery bank to be the way to optimize their effectiveness because if I have multiple battery banks, let's say I built three different battery banks, one out in my shop, one at one end of the house, one at the other end of the house, if I have two of them that are fully operational right now, I can be running stuff on them and I can be charging the third one and I can move that little generator system around to keep everything topped up. If I've got them all topped up, I can run power straight off my generator if I need it somewhere else. And and that's a great deal of flexibility versus just a generator or just a battery bag. Yeah, it does. And and uh, I like the kind of the tactical end of things as well. Um, there's times when you need power and, and having an engine running is not an option. Um, so having yeah. char- using this to charge a battery bank when it's safe to do it. Um, you know, when, when, you know, there's good, is daytime, there's good visibility, you can provide, you know, perimeter security, um, is different than running the thing at night, um, when, you know, sound carries, it seems so much further. What, what about applications like this? So, for instance, I was uh, reading Mark Shepard's book on restoration agricultural uh, recently, and he was like, in his, his polycultured system, one of the biggest sleepers is hazelnuts. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's a lot of wood that's pruned off that's used for inoculating with mushrooms, but there's a lot that's too small for that, and then there's the shells. So those two things have a huge energy yield if they're properly harnessed. Would you be able to gasify things like hazelnut shell with this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Any anything that would burn in a campfire um, would burn just fine here. Um, okay. Hazelnut shells would be awesome because they would be, you know, naturally small chunky pieces anyway that's the way they come and and you just fill up the the hopper um we did do some things we we discovered that uh below a certain size of of uh wood chunk um the air gets restricted too much in in getting down into the burn area so we we provided a bypass uh an air bypass that you, you can't see from the outside picture but inside the unit um you know above the fuel line uh is a is a passage that gets down right into the burn area so that if you want to run things, even, you know, small stuff that, you know, you wouldn't use, uh, like, chainsaw shavings. Those would be too small. You'd never get the air to go through that. But uh, crushed shell, um, you know, even like, uh, my, you know, my uh, the, the lead fabricator I've got uh, that, that's working on this, he's got a couple of rowdy sons, and, you know, they recently busted a, a dresser or something like that. So we just sent them out with a, with a hammer, and, you know, it was one of those um, – press board uh, furniture things, the kind that I got you. safe to have around teenage boys uh, because it doesn't cost so much. And he had them busted the rest of the way up, and we just used those chunks as fuel. Uh, and those work. Okay. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's pretty much a statement that just about anything is going to work. Because I see this for, like, the homesteader, small farmer, is actually a way to harness energy that would otherwise be wasted, not just as a prep. 
I mean, electricity costs money, period. And a lot of times getting electricity to certain places costs more money than the electricity itself. For instance, if I have a barn or a building somewhere near the back of my property, and I don't need a lot of power there, but I need some. I, I need to be able to turn lights on. And, you, and they start looking at the cost of doing something like a simple solar array. It gets up into several thousand dollars really, really fast, and it only works there. But I can throw a decent battery bank in there. You know, maybe if I don't use a lot of power, I need two GC2s or some, you know, just maybe two or four, um, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The batteries for, like, boats and stuff like that. Like, um, Oh, marine batteries. Marine batteries. A couple marine batteries or something like that. And an 800-watt inverter. I can put that together for $150. And if I have this for other uses, well, it can still go out there and top that off whenever I need it to. Yeah. And that way I've got – because the only thing more expensive than alternative power is no power where you need it. And sure. being able to use something like this where, okay, so we, we just pruned the, the, the nut and fruit trees, and here's all these little chunks, and we'll put a big pile over by that building now. And any time we need it, we just take – because these things are – I'm kind of blown away at the size of this stuff. I see a picture of you sitting at one of these expos, and I guess you've got what you call the little dragon with you just – my best guess there, mm-hmm. and it's it's sitting on a tabletop in front of you. It looks like a it looks like a, a big gas uh, glass pack muffler for a hot rod or something. Yeah, oh yeah, that there was a lot to uh, to making that guy small and work. So uh, one one thing I guess on the on the field before we leave that one behind, uh, just to, the big thing is make sure it's dry. Uh, one of the books says you know no more than fifteen percent moisture, but basically if it'll burn in a campfire. You know, and, and dung, you know, like uh, um, uh, we've got some llamas on, on the farm in Spokane. You know, if you lay those things out in the in the summer and, and dry them out and then stick them in 55-gallon, uh, you know, uh, uh, garbage bags, or uh, rather uh, um, garbage cans. Drums. Drums. Yeah. Uh, you know, or, you know, like uh, there's trees grow like weeds around uh, in, in the northwest here, so... You know, if, if uh, one of my nephews gets in trouble, it's like, okay, here's a five-gallon bucket. Go collect pine cones. Um, <laughs> there's, when, when, you, when those things are dry, there's so much sap in those things. When those things are dry, there's a lot of energy in pine cones. Oh, man. Yeah. You, anybody that's, any country boy's ever thrown a big pine cone in a fire knows there's a lot of energy in there. It makes me think that, you know, Dave Ramsey uh, from the radio, I remember him telling a story one time. He he didn't understand sweet gum trees at all and how many of those little balls there were. Mm-hmm. So he had he walked out in his like bare feet one morning at his little vacation place wherever these things were growing and he stepped on one. He went out to get the paper or something. He's like, "Okay, that's got to go." So he told his kids for every one they picked up, he'd give them a nickel. <laughs> and they disappeared and they came back like four hours later with like five garbage bags of these things. <laughs> and uh, he's like, okay, well, I guess I have to honor that commitment, but we won't be doing that again. But, I mean, a product like that would be an excellent gasifier product. I mean, there's okay. so much there's so much out there that could be used to produce energy. And, again, the small homestead, energy is a big expense. And, and, and also getting it to places – can you talk about, before we go into, I want to talk about the difference between the, the two models of gas fires, but before we do that, back on your generators real quick again. You've got this one with the inverter on it mm-hmm. and a smaller motor, and it is about 550 bucks. and then you've got the one without the inverter that is about 800 bucks. So how would I choose between those two, and what, 
it's obviously got a bigger motor. Is what would be the big advantage that would make me pay more for something without the uh, the, the inverter? Right, uh, the size of the battery bank could be uh, the the big deal there. Um, if you've got a, a if you've got a big battery bank, and you know, let's say if, if you're running, um, let's say six kilowatts or above, and and you and you use the thing, you know, you've got a fair amount of power needs. Um, you want to do a shorter run on filling that thing back up. Um, okay. Or if you regularly are, you know, you, you're hooked up to the battery bank and, and, and charging it at the same time that you're, you know, running tools and appliances off the thing. Um, and, and so you just, you know, basically you need more power. Uh, go for the bigger guy. Okay. And the, the smaller one, the big advantage there is I can just plug an appliance into it or I can plug any device into it without any additional paraphernalia. Yeah, but you know you need a you need a battery to provide the field coil on the uh, alternator anyway. And and for for the audience, don't freak out about that. Basically, we we provide two wires and they have battery connectors on them. You know, and and we've marked them plus and minus. So you hook that up to any kind of a car battery, um, and and you're good. Um, okay. That you know every, everything is. We we went with the the old Chevy style single wire uh, inverter. So there's basically no wiring for you to worry about. Very cool. Very uh, cool. But, but since you and you've got that battery right there, you can go down to Harbor Freight or wherever and get a any kind of inverter that you want. Hook it up to that battery um, and run it. You know the same way you would the, the little guy that that already comes with the inverter. Very cool. So let's talk now about the the two let's say full kits that you have available. You have the big dragon and the little dragon, mm-hmm. and then you've got some other options, plastic versus metal filters. But let's let's let that go for now. Um, you know, kind of what's what's the what's the the capacity? And I know whatever you put in it's going to change how long it'll run. But kind of an aggregate average, you know, what what are the advantages of the big one over the little one as far as runtime or whatever that is? And how would a person best decide which one's better for them? Okay, so the uh, the little dragon system um, would be better for the smaller engine for you know or. or Anything that's going to be about uh, you know three horse uh, uh, horsepower, roughly right in there. We've tested it and run it at a uh, a full six and a half um, horsepower engine uh, load on that thing, um, but the fuel hopper is smaller, so you're gonna basically you're gonna be filling up the fuel uh, much more frequently. So okay. if, so if you're looking at about a you know a three or a four horse motor, um, the the little guy is is uh, just perfect for that. Um, if you're looking for anything above that, uh, then we recommend the, uh, the the big dragon. And it's you know the fuel hopper in there is uh, about three about three gallons, uh, a little above three gallons. Um, so there's you know you're going to get a lot longer runs um, without having to refuel. Can, can you give some kind of a timeline again? I know it's very different if I put a pine in there versus live oak or, or what have you. But I mean, there, there's probably some rough average to to, to how long these things will run. Yeah, so we've we've had you know in the neighborhood of an hour to an hour and fifteen minutes on the uh, on the little dragon before we had to refill it, um, and about four times that long, so about five six hours um, with that with the same load um, with, with the same the, load with the same load. So probably about two hours with, if you had the six and a half force and and you were fully loaded running that thing full out, um, you get a couple hours um, on on that fuel hopper. One thing about it is you, you... But with the right battery charger, that's going to be enough to charge a hell of a battery bank on a single run. Oh, yeah. That, that's a lot of energy. You're, you're exactly right. Um, 
the uh, yeah two two hours two hours on on the big guy would be uh, would be just fine. Um, okay. and, and at that point, you're going to want to check your water temperature, and make sure you're not uh, you don't want to boil off that water. Um, you want you know the, the the dirty gas. People are afraid of the dirty gas for a very a very good reason. Um, if the tar is not extracted out of it, then uh, then you're going to get tar. Uh, when you turn off the engine, the tar will solidify, and then uh, then when you try to start it back up again, a valve will be stuck, or or uh, you know sometimes you can even uh, you know uh, damage a you know, bend a bend a um, rocker arm or something. Um, so the the biggest thing, uh, more so than worrying about you know getting the good gas, once you get once you get a nice blue flame, um, then you just you need to. We, we provide uh, clear hoses um, so you can look and see if you start accumulating not not brown but black um, uh, liquid on the inside of that. Check your uh, water temperature. Your probably water temperature is too high. Um, it's time to shut it down, refresh it, or, or connect a hose to it and let it uh, just uh, drool in. You know enough to keep that uh, nice and cool. Is there anything wrong with that water at that point as far as using it for irrigation or anything? Is it is it just a water jacket that actually stays separate, this water you're talking yeah. about? Yeah. The uh, so there's no reason I can't put that into a garden, let it cool, obviously, but put it into a garden or something. Oh, absolutely. Um, it, yeah, it's separate from the gas. There's nothing that touches it. Um, we haven't used the, the, the problem with RTV, um, the stuff that doesn't have the antifungal stuff, you know, is uh, – is, Basically, we need 600 degree RTV to uh, to have, do real good seals on that thing, and that's not you know for human consumption, but it'd be fine for for a garden. Um, now, one thing that that's for uh, uh, summertime operation. We've done a lot of work to make sure that in the heat um, we figured out what the limits are. You, basically, if your if your gas is getting above 90 degrees, your engine is not really going to run. So, that's you know keeping that water cool, or even you know some of the experiments we did where we actually packed it full of ice, the cooler. Um, we could get runs at 115 degrees air temperature um, for about 20 minutes, but you know the best thing to do is is not do it at you know two in the afternoon when it's 115 degrees. Is you know do it at three in the morning when it's uh, when it's 70 degrees, and and not push the system too hard. Gotcha. And I'm on your site, and you've got some other stuff too. You've got some stoves. You want to tell folks about those real quick? You got a single and a double. Um, this was along the lines of of you know how. As a prepper, how many different things can I do with one tool? Um, and and we had we were early on when we were still working on the quality of our gas. Um, in order to get the uh, a, a decent test run, where we, you know a test burn, um, we had to stick a, a basically we'd cut a, a quart paint can, stick it down on the end of the hose, and that basically let the gas expand and move slower to the point that it would ignite because you. You can you can blow the flame out if your if your airflow is too high. Um, we thought, wow, that looks just like a stove. And so uh, in in this case, you're instead of you know running an engine with the thing, you connect this up to it, and and it's it puts out. I mean, the little dragon with the fan there will put like a 18 inch flame. So if you've got a a big you know heavy duty uh, canning pot that you're and you want to do some canning. Um, don't stick it straight on the stove. It's not strong enough for that. Oh, wait a minute. So now I get it. So this device is not like some kind of a rocket stove or something. This is basically a stove to cook with the output from the gasifier. Yes. 
Yeah, you might need to add that to your description there because it looks like a standalone product. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I, I can do that. I guess I should have figured that out. But when I was looking, I'm like, okay, well, that's cool. It looks like you know you throw some sticks in there and it works like any. But okay, now I get it. That's what that that thing on the side. It's not a like a, a, a an air intake. That's actually where the gas from the gasifier goes in. And yeah. is that like a thing you have to use just that or run a generator? Is there like a way you could be doing both at the same time? Um, it's either or. Um, okay. If you're running the generator, it's drawing the gas through. And, gotcha. it, you know, so that it would suck air in the wrong way if, if you had a stove hooked up as well. Okay. And that makes a lot of sense now with the double, because you've got a double burner stove and they look pretty far apart. But that way you could be running two pots and it's far enough apart to make. Now that all makes sense. That's actually very freaking cool. Um, okay. Because that would let me cook with wood with a very clean flame. Yeah. Which is something difficult to do. Even with rocket stoves and all, they say it's clean. But all you got to do is look at the bottom of the pot and it's not. Um, it's cleaner, but clean versus clean, you know, cleaner are two totally different things. Yeah. So that's a really cool accessory. Like the little ones, like thirty bucks. The the double ones, like seventy five bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something you should probably get some video of. You don't have that in your video page. That's that that's really cool, and it does increase the versatility of what's available. Oh, it, it definitely does. There's, I guess, a, a, I've I've jotted down a couple of things that I forgot to mention from earlier on. Um, okay, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just say go ahead. Whatever, uh, whatever you want to add. Yeah, you mentioned the photo. Uh, that's actually uh, my brother in law. Um, he's, uh, he's the, uh, the, he's a, what, a 30 year avionics tech, uh, expert fabricator, um, that, uh, the, that industry is, uh, uh, slowly being strangled by the FAA. Um, so, you know, basically he was looking for something different to do and, and, you know, we do all these kind of projects together anyway. So, so he's actually the, uh, the lead fabricator and, and it's his farm that, you know, at least, uh, space from and, and we're, we're doing the work over there. Um, I'm not nearly as good looking as uh, as the photo of uh, Kelly in there. Um, uh, the other one is uh, wood oil. So we condense out almost all of the vapors, but not quite. Um, there's a little bit of wood oil in there, and and that wood oil is actually a good thing. It lubricates the valves. Um, if you do research on propane uh, adapters for generators, you'll you'll read that um, it's too dry of a fuel. And so they recommend a small, you know, oil dribbler um, that uh, puts oil into there to to lubricate the valves and and, and such. So the the amount of condensing that we do that removes all the tar, we leave back in there a certain amount of wood oil. Um, So when you, uh, you know, take things apart, you do some cleaning and it's like, oh, what's this brown stuff? Uh, Don't panic. That's uh, actually wood oil, and that's good for it. And if you if you take your carburetor off and look deeper in there, you'll see that you know where it's uh, warmer, uh, it didn't condense against it. It's clean. It's all getting burned, um, but uh, it leaves some uh, it leaves some on there for the uh, uh, for the valves to stay lubricated. Very cool. Um, so, how can people get all this stuff and uh, get in touch with you and what have you? Okay, so we've got uh, we've got our website uh, www.tacticalwoodgas.com, and uh, you know everything is orderable on there. Um, if you've got uh, technical questions, um, you know stuff that goes uh, straight to uh, to Kelly is is that sales at tacticalwoodgas.com. 
Um, and then I can take them also at uh, Mike at tacticalwoodgas.com. Um, you know, and, and I do more of the things like, you know, setting up, uh, you know, different survival uh, stores and, and, you know, get them uh, uh, started on, on wholesaling and, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, and then Kelly is more of the, you know, he's more of the technical daily, you know, in the product uh, kind of a guy and, and, and uh, has done a lot of the work on how do you get this thing to start easier? Because when we first started out, we said, this is so hard to start. No one's going to buy this thing. And so we just basically waited to to bring it to market until we could bring something that that, that could properly be started. And then we've got a Facebook page, Tactical Wood Gas, um, and then we've got a YouTube channel, which has more videos than we have on the um, on the page there. Um, if you've got you got a, a minute for a little side uh, story related to, uh, we got all the time in the world, man. This ain't mainstream <laughs> media. Okay, cool. So. Uh, I did a little, um, I mean, the, the origin of that uh, little dragon is that we, I had a good design for the big dragon and I said, you know, I had heard you talk about uh, the Kickstarter stuff and, and how that's a good, you know, option to look at for funding. And I thought, well, let me try that. Um, and I didn't get funded, but um, part of, of that was, hey, I've got this, you know, reward unit, which is the big dragon. Um, I need something for, for people to get started in this thing or, or have a smaller reward level. And, and so the, the small dragon was like, how small can I make it? And then would it actually make gas? And lo and behold, it did. Um, and, uh, but at the end of that, the, the Kickstarter didn't fund. And so Archer from the forum said, Hey, you know, he was one of the, uh, the backers for the thing. It's like, what, you know, how do we, uh, go from here? What are our options? And I said, well, um, you know, we could set up a demo. Um, and, and so I, I basically I took Google Maps and I put it on Western Washington and I typed in survival. And I found this place called the Survival Center in Yelm, Washington. And I just cold called the guy and said, you know, hey, here's who I am. Do you know anything about gas fires? Uh, you know, do you mind being the, the site that, that uh, you know, TSPers can show up to and, and I can do a demo because I didn't really have a, a location in, in Western Washington that, you know, that I could do that at. He says, Oh yeah, sure. Come on down. So we, we do the demo there and, and, uh, met some really neat people. Um, and, uh, you know, got them signed up as, as, uh, you know, uh, retailers and, and did some sales and, and everyone leaves. And then the guy says, Hey, you want to see something cool? And, and like the, the red flag started flying up. It's like, um, maybe, is it legal? And, uh, you know, am I going to get in trouble from knowing this? Uh, what, you know, so I say, well, sure. You know, um, you know, Kelly was with me. I thought, you know, we're both armed. We should be okay. And he brings us around back to the back end of this property. He's got this big old Quonset hut and he's got these, uh, you know, his covered spaces and he, and he un- unzips it and we go in there and basically he's, he's been fabricating and selling doomsday bunkers since the seventies. Hmm. Um, from from this location, like the neighbors don't know, nobody knows. And he he went through the routine of you know how does he make these things, and then you know after the you know the sale he comes and does the prep site, and he you know he he you know he he posts these you know um, I don't know if he posts like septic permits or something crazy like that, and then uh, and basically digs the site and gets it ready, and then they they've got the thing tarped the whole way. He basically builds them so they'll fit on a big old flatbed trailer. And drives them out and and buries them at nighttime, and is is done and gone by morning. Um, so I, I think there's uh, you had talked about uh, 
doomsday preppers and, and how, you know, the, the, the guys who run the show are, are not the best of people and maybe no. not, not so honest. Um, and so they, you know, you, I've seen that show, the doomsday bunker show. I've met a real life doomsday bunker guy and, uh, they are not, uh, <laughs> nothing like the guys on the TV. Uh, no, and I mean, it, I, I'll tell you the the God's honest truth. If it didn't require a jackhammer and dynamite, there'd probably be an underground structure right here, and and it wouldn't be so that uh, I could hide down there when the zombies come. It would be because we have these swirly twirly things every year called tornadoes, and they make you like dead and stuff. Um, so I don't think inherently just having a subterranean structure is a bad idea or, or in, in many ways not a very valid prep. I just think that some of the crap that gets sold as fear in this industry is ridiculous. If you look at your product, if the world ends as we know it, yeah, you'll be able to produce electricity. But I can come up with a, a thousand uses for your product uh, that, that, that help me out while times are quote-unquote good. Um, anytime I can produce electricity with a waste product, that goes in the wind column. It goes right up. So I had this old saying about the wind column, right? And one was, I had a lot of sayings about the wind column. One was, every day I don't spend in the back of a pickup truck with my arm sitting on a yellow cooler uh, on my way home from work goes in the wind column. Well, it also goes in the wind column when I can take a waste product and make energy with it. So I, I think we have to balance all these things. Yeah, we do. We do. Um yeah, there's, uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to get this, uh, you know, get some traction, I guess, here in the States, because I think there's a lot of people who would benefit from it, you know, even from just a recreational, uh, you know, off-grid uh, cabin, you know, on some yeah. um, salmon river in, in Alaska or, or, or whatever. Um, but then there's, you know, the people that are without uh, power from the Carl- Carlton Complex fire to, you know, just... Uh, you know what happens when uh, when gas goes up, uh, you know, to seven eight bucks because of some, you know, the escalating wars in, in the world and and well, definitely. And I mean, the other thing that makes me think of is all these people building these tiny houses on trailers right now. Well, your big system doesn't take up a quarter of the space in the back of a standard pickup bed, and, and pretty much anywhere you park that sucker, there's going to be some scrap wood or fall, limb fall or something around you can generate power with. Um, there's so many people doing off-grid cabins. Some are living in them, but a lot of them are using them for hunting cabins and things like that. A battery bank in this thing, and you have a pretty much endless supply of energy if you're in a wooded area. Um, It would be a long time, I think, before just by picking up dead branches that you would run out of ways to to create power. Um, it's, it's, It's a great thing, and it seems like... To be honest, and it, you know, I don't blow smoke up people's ass at all. You've developed what seems to be the the first affordable, practical product in this space. A lot of people have talked about it. I've not seen one before. Sub thousand dollars that'll do what this does. No, and and because I, I had money in my wallet to to spend on it and buy it, and I couldn't find it. Um, that that's you know a big part of what led us down this path. And you know, from a uh, from a competitive standpoint, we've got the uh, you know, provisional patents in. And so I'm not really worried about competition because everything that it took to make this thing light and affordable and, and, and manufacturable, we've got covered there. Um, you know, I just, I want people to, you know, even if they see it and say, oh, it's possible and just do their own. I want more sure. and more people to be prepared. The, the, you know, even from a selfish standpoint, the more prepared people there are, the less I have to help. Um, exactly. No, exactly. 
<laughs> you know, yeah. and and the better off they're, you know, the more res- the the more prepared people are, the less they, uh, you know, get pushed around by the politicians because they have options. That's a big part of of me and my own personal self sufficiency. You know, if uh, if I want to, you know, tell someone to go away and and not worry about the consequences, it sure helps to have. Uh, uh, livestock and, and a garden and my own power. And, and if they shut off the power and they, they won't deliver propane, I don't care. You know, it, it, uh, it, it gives you options should, uh, things become more toxic than they are. Very, very cool. Um, as we, as we wrap up here, pause real quick. All right. So, um, I want to hit you up here at the end, man. We've got the uh, member support brigade. You're a longtime listener. I know you're a member. That's probably why I know your name from one way or another. What about doing some kind of discount for MSB members on on your product? Right. So we haven't set up the website for it yet. But uh, uh, for if you're an MSB member, uh, send me an email, uh, Mike at tacticalwoodgas.com, and what we're doing is a ten percent discount on the generators. Okay. Uh, and uh, yeah. And what we'll do between us, we'll come up with some kind of a code word, and, and I'll list you in the MSB, so only MSB members can get that that code word, and they'll have to include it in the email or something like that until you can do a, a discount code because we want that preserved for MSB members. Awesome. Uh, and you go ahead and say your email address, but I'll make sure I list it in the MSB again. Okay. Yeah, uh, Mike at tacticalwoodgas.com. Okay, cool. And you know that's I think that's a great deal, guys. I want you to think about this. If you pick up a, a wood gasifier and the six horsepower generator, uh, that generator is seventy seven hundred ninety nine dollars. That's a seventy nine dollar disc. Call it eighty bucks by the time it's over with. Um, if you get the smaller generator, it's fifty four dollar discount. So uh, thanks for that, Mike. And hopefully we can send you some more business because the point of the MSB is not to just be up vendors for discounts. It's to help small vendors become more successful. I love what you're doing there, man. And, uh, folks, it might be a day or two before I get that code into the MSB for you, but I'll, I'll try to get that this week. I have to go to town this weekend, and I want to make sure I don't leave anything untied. Um, and, and then just, again, how people can learn more about your site if somebody just wants to buy some stuff from you or ask you a question or what have you. Sure, yeah. It's uh, www.tacticalwoodgas.com. Um, and then we also have a uh, YouTube channel, which has more videos than we have on the website right now. My uh, my webmaster is vacationing with his wife in Alaska, and so I'm leaving him alone <laughs> while he's having fun. And then we have uh, uh, also Facebook. We have uh, Tactical Wood Gats on, on Facebook, and we post additional videos there as well. So if you want to get the full set of videos, all three of those locations. Very cool, man. Well, thanks for being with us today, Mike, and... Uh Thanks for uh, uh, just, I mean, actually really innovating in this space. This has been something tons of people have talked about. You guys have actually done it. I'm really proud that you're someone out of this audience that's done that. And uh, and if, if you come up with something new or want to talk about just energy in general or what have you, uh, get with us. We'll definitely have you back on the air. Well, thanks, Jack. really appreciate the uh, the chance to get the word out to uh, to the fellow preppers there. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spierko today along with Mike Leister helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way
Revolution is you. 